I was like, this is it. This is it for me. This is the path. This is what I'm going to leverage. This is way better than selling real estate, immensely better than selling financial wealth products. This is the best sales career. All you have to do is get people to like you. If that's something you can do well, you're going to make a lot of money in this space. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. This is your host, Mark Whitby. I'm delighted to be joined today by Don Don Zhu. Don Don started recruiting right out of college on a full desk as a pharma headhunter uh, at a top recruitment firm that was growing rapidly through the United States. She was a top rookie and a top biller internationally, and she parlayed her success into saving up a lot of money, which she converted into real estate investments, retiring at the age of 28, which is just crazy. After two years off, Don Don re-entered the recruitment scene and established DG Recruit in 2018, a recruitment firm that only services agency recruiters. So now Don Don and Grace, her business partner, are pioneering the rec to space in the United States. They've got exciting plans ahead. She also has her own podcast, DG Recruit Podcast. Don Don, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Now, <clears throat> I first came across you because you're very visible on LinkedIn. You do a, such a great job with your content and your thought leadership and a really good mixture of like professional and kind of insight as well as some personal things. And, uh, and that's exactly, we encourage our clients within our inner circle coaching program to, to do exactly what you're doing. So I'd encourage our listeners to look up Don Don Zhu. It's D-A-N-D-A-N-Z-H-U on LinkedIn. Follow and connect with her. Take a look at the content she's putting out because um, she's, um, she's doing a fantastic job with that. Don Don, I also have heard great things about you from one of my coaching clients, Amanda Brandenburg, who has also been on the show a few weeks ago. Um, so sooner or later, it was inevitable that we were going to get together, I think. Absolutely. Yeah, it's kind of amazing how many recruiters there are in the world, but it is a small community at the same time. So good people know good people, as they say. Exactly, exactly. So um, tell me about starting, like, there's a few things I want to talk to you about. One is you were super successful in recruitment yourself. So talking about you know, how you made that happen and the remarkable things you achieved there. But also from a recruit to recruit point of view, um, one of our groups is um, made up of owners of firms who are scaling and really growing rapidly. And I'm constantly hearing how challenging it is to hire recruiters, which is ironic considering, you know, you would think that recruiters would be good at hiring recruiters, but um, so I'd love to pick your brains about that as well. Like what is the key to successfully hiring agency recruiters? But before we get to that, like, could you just tell me your story, how you got into recruitment and why you think you were so successful early on? Absolutely. So when I first got into recruiting, this was a relatively new industry and still is in the U.S. I think in the U.S., recruitment is not at all saturated or even though there's a lot of recruiting going on, it's not saturated in the sense of having a lot of amazing headhunters in this country to service the immense business needs. So it starts because we don't know about this industry. And a lot of us, especially like college graduates, we're looking for a job that isn't a nine to five that pays a set salary. Like for me, I had already figured out many ways to make money as a college student because my mom didn't give me money. So I had to figure out all ways to like survive 
by myself while going to school. So I came up with all these mechanisms to make money. And then by the time I graduated, I was like, I don't want like a $50,000 job or a $60,000 job because I could just do that by bartending, by, you know, doing any type of like hustling on eBay, right? Like selling stuff on the internet. So for me, it was like getting a job like that is a waste of my time because I'm not going to love whatever it is that 50 to $60,000 job is going to be. Like it's, let's be honest, work is work. So I wanted a job that had income exponential like opportunity. I wanted to increase my income abnormally. I didn't want the eking out of like the 5%, 3%, the 6%. I wanted like massive uptick in income. And a lot of successful people had did it through sales. And it was just luck, fate, what have you. The company that was hiring at the time was a massive UK agency that was just starting out in the US. And I personally wanted to live in New York. That's where a lot of really great firms go to. And I just kind of fell into their lap. They fell into my lap. They called me and was like, you wouldn't be a good candidate for finance, but you might be really good at recruiting. So I was like, awesome. This sounds kind of like a scam, but at the same time, it sounds interesting. And I want to live in New York and you're giving us a 35 K base, which is enough to like have a place to rest my head. So why not? You know, you're 23 years old. There's nothing to lose. It's only upside. Who knows? And the day I got into the business, I was like, this is insane. This business is insane. And I cannot believe it exists. Right. Because my family didn't come from money and we're immigrants and my parents are in the hospitality sector. So I never met headhunters. I didn't know who they were. You know, we don't have high end executives in our family that would like let me know about this career. And once I got into it, I'm I'm talking about day one. I was like, this is it. This is it for me. This is the path. This is what I'm going to leverage. This is way better than selling real estate, immensely better than selling financial wealth products. This is the best sales career because all it relies on is likability. And that is just so easy. All you have to do is get people to like you. And that that if that's something you can do well, you're going to make a lot of money in this space. Um, and so that was the start. That was the start of my recruiting career. And the company I worked for, they had very good training. They had very good um, people that had done very well. My manager especially was very good. So he gave me a lot of great uh, tips of how to do the work. Um, and I just worked very hard. So I worked seven days a week. I'd come in on weekends. I'd go to work all the time. Work was my number one and all-consuming, obsessive, um, you know, task. Nothing else could beat the payout of work, right? Before, I, I would always think, oh, I have to work a regular day job. And then on the weekends, I'd side hustle and sell stuff on the internet to make money. But when I started recruiting, I was like, I'm going to spend those weekends meeting candidates because that's what's going to make me even more money doing less work than hustling around, dragging things to the post office, right? I, I might as well spend those weekends making friends with the people in my industry. And that's how, you know, I got an advantage on the candidate market was just spending a lot more time meeting and greeting the people in my business. Wow, that's fantastic. Don, Don, I can see why you're successful now because of like the enthusiasm that uh, you and the passion and also the work ethic is is uh, insane. So like, I, I feel like if anyone worked that hard and was that, you know, had that much drive and, and, and passion, then it's it's success is inevitable, right? So uh, what sort of people were you recruiting? I started off recruiting regulatory writers, which is a very niche field. And these folks do like FDA, um, NDA submissions like for new drugs. And so they're very, uh, it's, it's like a, it's a very interesting demographic 
because it's so niche. And, and that, I think, again, was a reason that led to a lot of success was that the demographic really appealed to me and I to them. So we were able to build those relationships. It was mostly like mostly women in this industry, uh, mostly mid-aged with families, very stable folks, because I did direct hire only anywhere from the junior level. But junior is already like, you know, 80 to $90,000 up to about 200 grand for like a director of medical writing. So I started off with Jersey, then I broke into Philly and Delaware and Massachusetts and Chicago, and then just wherever the clients took me. So some of it would be remote. Some of it could be in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, Ohio, you know, so I got to travel all around the country just doing this one market for three years. That's the market I did for three years. Then my company wanted me to become a manager, uh, which ultimately became a total disaster. Um, but uh, they, they had me like leave this market to open up quality assurance, which I didn't like as much, um, did that briefly. And then I did executive search. So I finished my career at my first and only agency, first and only employer for um, executive search. That's what I did for the last year and a half was uh, building those relationships with clients, uh, filling the recs. And again, it was just at the highest level. So the fees were a lot bigger for a lot less work, really. But it was just a different type of work. It's still a lot of meeting and greeting. Um, and it was really cool to just kind of experience building out multiple markets in that pharma sector. Brilliant. And so tell me about now, what's remarkable about you is that you were able to save up enough. Like you obviously were performing well and you're making good money and you, but then you had the discipline to save it and then to start investing it, which I wish I had done that when I was your age, like, or at that age. Right. Um, so what was, what was, where does that come from? Like, where did you get that idea from? I think that comes from a lot of it is my culture being Chinese. You know, Chinese people are, are you know, it's a stereotype, but it's all stereotypes have some element of reality. Uh, basis. And for me, it was very much seeing my parents struggle and work very hard and having financial insecurity growing up. And because I grew up in that environment, I knew that the only way out of it was to game the system. The only way to game the system is to do it differently than others. And so um, I've always tried to find ways to cut corners financially. And a lot of that just guided the sacrifices and the decisions I made. Um, because I'm a very like... Uh, I, I'm very no frills, low key. I don't really care about stuff. Like I don't have to live in Manhattan. I don't have to have a high rise building. I don't have to have those things. And that helped me a lot. Like I would go out to hang out with colleagues after work and I wouldn't even drink a lick of liquor just for the price. Just because it was expensive, I would grab a glass of water. Like it was like that. If I did buy drinks, I would buy it for others as a way to earn goodwill. Like everything I did was very strategic. I never just like had, I never let loose, especially in the, in the come up as I call it, right. In the come up, I never let loose. Like I never bought anything expensive. I always lived very tightly close to my means uh, because it was that fear of being, um, of being insecure financially. And then also because of the drive and an ambition of having financial freedom, which is ultimately what I always wanted, which is I don't want to report to someone forever. My parents are small business owners. You know, they never have to like watch other people's face to live their life. And that's a Chinese phrase. Like they never had to live by other people's wants and needs. They always could sustain themselves. And I think that's a very much uh, psychological and subconscious drive that I had to escape 
the the rat race as Robert Kiyosaki or whatever those people call it. Yeah. Um, and obviously when I was younger, I read a lot of those books. So it really shaped, you know, I have to do it differently. I can't be an employee mindset. I have to think about my future, which is beyond my job. Beautiful. So the book you're referencing there is Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Uh, that's a good one. I've read it, but I didn't implement it. Done, done. You implemented it. So good for you. Um, so now you're on the other side, you're advising recruiters who want to progress and develop their career. So what advice, based on your experience and, and now in a position where you're helping recruiters to accelerate their success, what advice do you give people in terms of how to be really successful at recruitment? I think, I think that that's a really tough question to answer because everyone has a different issue of why they're not reaching success. Sometimes it's a systemic issue with their business and their employer where they're just not set up to make money, whether it's a commission plan or the market that they're being given or the remit in that market that they're being given. So you see a lot of folks that work at large recruiting agency, much bigger than the ones that I worked at. And that's even harder where you know their commission rates are like laughable. It's there's one very big tech recruitment agency that their junior recruiters the first year they get $300 per placement and they have to do like 16 of them to get promoted which is insane to me because I made $90,000 my first year just about doing like I think 10 or 11 deals. So it's insane to me that someone who's doing 16 deals could only really earn 40 to $45,000. That kind of makes me very sad that these agencies are basically taking advantage of their college, like, you don't know what you're doing kind of situation. And then these folks work at those agencies and it's crazy. I see them working there for 10 years and their income is like $150,000, which isn't a lot in the agency space. And it's sad to me that like they're getting screwed out of their commission that badly. So I think that's part of it is like this systemic commission reward isn't there. And then also the remit, the region, it's like, hey, you can only service this little city and you can only do like these five verticals. And then your time is split across five verticals in one dinky city. And that's a limited financial gain because there just isn't enough to satisfy an ambitious person. So the saddest thing for me is seeing a go-getter waste their time and get bamboozled by their employer. And then it's also their fault, though, if you think about it, because if you are a worker and you understand kind of how the business runs, at what point do you not put the two and two together and say, hey, I know I can do this. I like doing this. And I'm going to do this elsewhere. That's what gets to me because a lot of recruiters were like, yeah, I'm a victim of this situation. And I'm like, yeah, but you also know how to do simple math. And you know that there's a lot of money, money, money to be made in this. And the internet is so vast. And you could talk to other recruiting agencies easily. So I think sometimes it's also due to the individual. They personally don't want to do the work. They don't want this job. Ultimately, they don't enjoy it. Um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of kissing up to people. It's a lot of suppressing yourself and your emotions and taking people's garbage and dealing with people's emotional issues and always having to be the bigger person. That is very, very difficult, especially if you're not being paid enough to do that. So I think it's it's a symbiotic, you know, negative kind of cycle that creates such a high volume of people exiting the industry every single minute of the day. Like this industry, I think, has such a high exit rate as much as it is in real estate, which honestly isn't even our true career. It's like a hustle economy. I would say, you know, 
recruitment has a similar exit rate. It's, it's insanely high because of this systemic and personal issue. Uh, but for the people who like this job and who enjoy doing it, they will usually find us and they will work with us and we will place them elsewhere because they're like, I don't want to work at a big recruiting agency. And some people are just, you know, they want to work at big companies. They're company people. Again, this goes back to like the personal thing, personal preference. Some people just want the perks. They want the smoothies. They want the, um, the, the happy hours, the socializing. In recruiting, you don't get paid to do any of those things. That's only supplementing a culture. It's not why you go to work. So some people don't prioritize money at the end of the day. And the brutal reality is this job is just money. There really isn't much to it. It's not innovative. It's not exciting. It's not dynamic. I mean, the job itself is very difficult and dynamic, but this industry is very, it's it's just a service, you know, professional service that's been around for generations, like law, right? It's, it's not exciting. It's not, you know, it's, it's fun and, you know, lawyers like their job. I like my job, but it's, it, the industry itself isn't like tech where it's like, oh, we're going to do AI today. Oh, we're going to do, it's not like that. It's, it's very basic. You're, you're kind of like processing people and clients. So I think people do also get a little bit bored with the work because again, money is not the number one driver for every single person at every single stage in their life. So people's needs change over time as they build up their financial you know, wherewithal and financial nest egg, which gives them other opportunities at that point to maybe do something else. It's so interesting, Dan, uh, Don Don, that you um, you worked for a UK recruitment company uh, to to start out, and th- this whole industry of recruit to recruit is huge over here. But you're the only person I'm aware of based in the states who does this. Um, how did you sort of decide? that you were going to go and and work in, in, you were going to recruit recruiters for other agencies. It was an accident. So at that point I had, I was managing my properties. I was like a landlord. All my money was tied in real estate. I mean, like 95% of my net worth was stuck in immovable, illiquid assets. And because of that, these assets, you need a certain degree of financial, like inflow, just cash inflow to carry that kind of asset. And I was short, I was starting to run out. And because I, this is because I was a young entrepreneur and things didn't go as I planned. I had all these grandiose ideas of just starting a video content business about like career coaching candidates. And I did all that, but it wasn't what I enjoyed doing. And I didn't put in the necessary time and effort to make it really a cash cow to supplement all the needs of my real estate portfolio. So at this point, I'm like, I'm like calling out to the universe, like, I need to do something. Something needs to change. I have to like do something else. And very organically, uh, people started coming to me and started saying, you know, you should recruit recruiters. This is actually a market that exists. And that's something maybe now that you're like a free, you know, free bird, you can go and do whatever you want. This could be something fun. And I was like, I have never thought about that, but it's genius because recruiting in markets and recruiting companies, like my experience, they're entirely insular, totally like isolated communities because of you know, the clicks between like recruiters and other agencies. So like, because it's so you and me versus everybody else or I against everybody else, there is very little like friendship building between competitors and very little networking with other recruiters. That's just something you don't do because it could be looked upon very unfavorably as being disloyal or, um, 
just not being smart. Like, why would you need to do that? It's, it's just something that we don't really do as an industry. So when I heard about recruiting recruiters, my friend gave me the idea. I was like, this is brilliant because it's, it makes total sense. Like this, I could see this being a need because I myself personally had never had a headhunter represent me or work with me. And I would be the ideal candidate. And it's insane that and all my colleagues, they would be ideal candidates, but none of us had that support. And it was like, this is a market that obviously there could be something to be gained here. And that's how I got started was like often the, often an idea started putting out social media posts. Then all of my friends and other people, other new clients were like, oh, cool. You recruit recruiters. We are a recruiting agency. We need people. So it was very fast to get clients. And it was very fast for me to like hire people. And so we grew very quickly um, and just started going. And it was, it was like 2018, the market was really good. 2019 was phenomenal. Uh, we broke seven figures like 2019. And then 2020 COVID hit, totally changed my business. A lot of folks left, including my original business partner. Grace was someone I, I trained and hired during 2018. She elevated and became my current business partner, we set up DG Recruit, uh, DG Rec Inc. together uh, really this year now. So this is like us as a 2.0 version. And now we're just, now we're, we have a very different business than 2018, what we had. Uh, but four years of doing this market is very, very like mind eye-opening. And I bet. it was just, a, yeah, very interesting journey. But yeah, like you said, most of recruiting agencies that do this are British and they work in the USA and they service USA clients. Um, mostly they service British clients that are growing out here because obviously that's where their book is. Um, but I, I would say, again, because they're not living here, there is a big gap in terms of knowledge and, you know, the approach but, you know, the market is big enough for everyone to kind of find their own niche within that market. Brilliant. Coincidentally, my COO, Leanne, uh, her entire career was in recruitment to recruitment. So like her first job out of uh, out of university, same age that you got started, um, she joined a, a rec to rec agency and then she set up her own. So she ran her own rec to rec company for five years before getting into the coaching business. Um, so for sure, there's a there's a massive demand. In fact, I'm I'm guessing that your niche, just like many others at the moment, is very candidate driven that you probably are more in need of, of candidates than, than clients. Um, what do, what do you think are the characteristics that you look for in a great recruiter, someone who you think is very placeable and who's going to perform for your, for your client? Uh, I think we look at track record as being mm -hmm. the most, uh, that's, Number one, what we look at, we look at where they're at in their career. So if there's a recruiter that's been recruiting for five years and every single year they're at a new agency, right away, that's a very unattractive candidate just without even having to think twice. Um, if someone's junior, we look at where they're coming from. Like, let's say they're eight to 12 months in the business. That's when we start wanting to build that relationship because we want to start following them in their journey. Um, the qualities are pretty much standard. Like they have to be somewhat socially savvy. They need to be somewhat verbally adept. They have to have, you know, decent communication skills just, just off the bat. Uh, but really they have to have a deep drive for what is making them want to stay in recruitment. And that's really where people fail 
is they don't have a deep desire or passion for recruitment. So this is just like a pit stop for them. So those folks are obviously not representable because we're not going to make money off of someone who wants to do that. And we don't feel comfortable selling that person to a client. Uh, We have very long-term and very strong relationships with our clients where our candidates speak for us. If the candidate is not performing well, isn't driven, is very much a hassle, we don't want to even do the deal. So uh, that's that's like the biggest piece is figuring out, do they really understand what recruitment is? Do they genuinely want another recruitment job? And if so, are they a fit for our clientele? Because we don't represent large recruiting agencies. Like I said, back to what we talked about earlier in this conversation, which is, are they a big company person? If they're a big company person, that's not our clientele. We don't service like the large recruiting agencies. Those are the the sites that we look to poach people from to find the one or two that are truly entrepreneurial, that want to run their own business. We bring those people to our clients. So we're a niche within a niche. And because of that, we actually don't represent probably like 80 to 90% of people that we talk to. And a lot of people, you know, they waste our time. They want to talk to you. They want to network. And then you find out a year later or six months later or three months later, they go internal. And it's just like, we kind of knew that. Like, you, you know, we kind of knew you were going <laughs> I that saw direction, your, whatever. Your LinkedIn yeah. uh, profile has hashtag never internal, which I liked. It was, <laughs> that was funny. Would you like to make the transition from pure contingency to being a retained recruiter? Do you want to be respected as a true business partner by your clients while increasing your average fee? If so, then clearly you need to do something different. You can't just keep doing what you're doing and expect a different result. Our sponsor, iIntro, gives you a turnkey solution for winning retained searches and managed service agreements at higher fees. You will take business away from your competitors because you can actually show the client a unique methodology in a very tangible way and demonstrate conclusively how you will improve their staff retention and reduce their total cost per hire while also saving hours of management time. If you'd like to see how iIntro can help you to grow your recruitment business and increase your average fees, just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained. Book a free consultation. There's no obligation, and if you mention that you listen to this podcast, iIntro have pledged to offer you a 25% discount on any of their services. Just go to recruitmentcoach.com forward slash retained to get started. So let me just break this down a bit because, first of all, totally get with what you're saying. Uh, All of my clients are small, medium-sized businesses as well. Um, So those are the companies that I most... I identify with and that I am most excited about, about working with. Um, and I agree with you that like that drive, that desire is one of the most important um, criteria, but it's very difficult to assess. How do you actually get to the bottom of whether or not someone has that, you know, internal uh, drive, that self-motivation? Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot of clues that they'll drop for you because there is this thing that the candidates do where in their mind, especially when they're talking to Grace or me, they've followed us, they've seen our posts, they know we talk about success, we're genuinely passionate, we live by those values, we have a zero base, we're entrepreneurs, we really believe in creating something out of nothing, we really embody these values. However, a lot of candidates, they'll they'll talk to us and they'll say they have these values, but at the end of the day, they do not 
do that action. They don't really realize it. And this is just something that everybody falls into, whether it's like, I'm going to lose X amount of weight, or I'm going to save this amount of money. At the end of the day, very few people actually execute on those things. So those are the people that we want to find is the people that are actually going to not just talk about it, but go out and do it. Right. There's plenty of people that pick my brain for real estate and stuff. And I'll literally give them real estate listings like you need to check this out. This is in your area. You need to call the agent and they won't even do that. And just the other day, they wasted an hour of my time talking about how much they were ready to do it. So a lot of it is just like this people, they have this inertia. And what we try to do is pick between what are they saying and how is that not really the case? And so like good clues are like, I don't mind agency recruiting. I don't mind going to another recruiting agency. That is not the same as I love agency recruitment. I would never go internal. I want an agent. I want to work at a really cool agency, right? A lot of people say stuff like, oh, I don't, oh, I don't mind another agency. And what they're really saying is I'm waiting for that perfect internal recruiting job to come. And in the meantime, <laughs> I don't mind bumming around somewhere. You know, until now, this is comes. brilliant. What? So I don't mind. What What are some other clues that you're listening to for, Don Don, or you're reading between the lines based on what they're telling you yeah. that would yeah. signal to you that they don't have mm-hmm. that real deep passion or desire to, to do this? Well, this is where it's very gray area where we look at people's style of communication. Mm-hmm. So for me, if someone mispronounces my name straight off of the bat, I always go, that's not very smart, right? Like you, you, you kind of know who you're about to talk to. To get it right. It's not that hard. And I don't take any offense to it. Mind you, I, I don't care. People mispronounce my name all the time and it doesn't bother me. My tenants, people that I know, they call me the wrong name for my clients. They call me the wrong name for decades. And that's, <laughs> I don't care. Right. What bothers me with, I'm talking to a candidate is you are a salesperson. You can't afford to mispronounce Mr. Mrs. Hiring manager's name. So if you're going to miss, you know, how can you just not get it right? You know, it's such a simple mistake. So that to me, so I had a girl call me the other day from a large recruiting agency and she's like, hi, Dan, Dan. And I'm like, oh God, here we go. And it, it, it's just like, hi, Dan, Dan, I want to ask you about like, you know, I'll, you could just tell by the quality of their questions, you know, who this person is, the vocal tone. You know, some people talk, they have zero charisma. Zero, they ask the dumbest questions. You're just like, man, this person's just like, you know, this person's not workable because that's how they're going to behave on a client call. They're going to ask all the wrong questions. They're going to say all the stupid things. They're going to sell themselves incorrectly. She's like, and then people make wrong assumptions. This is another big mistake. Smart salespeople never assume because Absolutely. you don't know who you're talking to. Yeah. Right. So this girl goes, oh, I think I think you do this, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. And I'm like, why would you, why don't you just say, hey, what do you do? I, I've seen a lot of your posts. What do you do? So open questioning, it's just, it's an art you have to get it right or else your your recipient is going to really get turned off very quickly because you only get one quick moment of time to establish that rapport. And once that's over, it's done. So very quickly, you see these signs. Okay, they're not asking good questions. They're not. And then they'll say these things like, that's a very good question. Let me answer that. It's so typical and basic. <laughs> it's, I, I rarely say that. When if someone asks me something, I don't go like, oh, great, great question. That becomes repetitive. Every single time they're asked a question, they're like, great question. Let me answer that for you. Blah, blah. And they're wordy. The intro, the self-intro is another big clue. People just start selling themselves. It's extremely, again, lack of commercial sense, right? Like, if, if I'm like, oh, hey, cool. I never even asked this candidate. 
tell me about yourself because I don't need to know. I have their whole background. I know everything about them already. I've been doing this long enough. I know enough about them. I have very pointed questions that I need to get to so that we can figure out what's going on here. Right. And the candidate will just start blindly selling themselves. And I'm like, oh, great. This is like a two minute monologue that I have to sit through. Right. And like being a recruiter, again, you know, being a recruiter, that's that's not what you do on the sales floor. You don't call right. up a client and go, let me talk to you for two minutes, Mr. Mrs. Complete Stranger, about me. You don't have that luxury. That's not what's going on on a client call. And obviously, when I start asking them, oh, so you do sales? Yes, I do sales. Cool. Walk me through a client call. Just because I can tell they don't have good communication skills. And because I know they don't have good communication skills, I want them to role play. And I'm like, great. So just give me an example of like a custom, a customary cold call. How would you open it up? And they'll say, well, I'll start telling them about my company. I'll start telling them about me. I'm like, no one is going to sit there and listen to you do that. That's not what happens on the sales floor. When I call a client, they're not sitting there listening to me talk about myself. That's not what's happening. I have to make my pitch. I have to make it quick. I have to get in there. I have to build rapport. It's a very narrow window that you have this opportunity to crack that account. So which is just because I've done the job and I know what it takes to land these clients and break into these accounts, that it's very easy for me to assess if someone is lying to me or not. And you can tell with their family background too. People come from money. People come from comfortable situation. And it's just a simple question of, this job sucks. It's a difficult job. Why do you have to do it? And they're like, yeah, you know, you're right. Actually, it is a really difficult job. And then a what if question. I always throw out the what if question. What if you had a job that could give you $80,000 guaranteed where you have this, I paint that beautiful picture. Or you have this job. You're eating dirt. You're fighting every single person on the street for the candidate. You're doing everything you can to get your foot in the door. You're working 10 to 12 hours a day. You're schlepping around town. You, you don't know what the future looks like. You're on a crappy base salary. You're going to have to live in your room share for the next like year or two. Which one would you prefer? If I had these options for you, which one would you take? 90% of people will pick the former. And I'm like, great. Well, guess what? That was a trick question. I'll do that. So see ya. Right? Like, that's kind of how it goes. Like... People will lie to you if you give them the chance. And that's not because they're bad people. It's just because you are not a good interviewer. If you were a good interviewer, you would limit people. That's the skill that we're paid to do is to assess who is lying and who is not lying. We are human lie detectors. And if someone is lying, then we need to make an ethical decision. Do we represent this person? Yeah, maybe we could profit off of this person. I certainly could get anybody to hire anyone I put in front of them. But is that an ethical decision? That, is that how I want to make my money? And that is not how I want to make my money. I don't like that. I don't, first of all, I don't need, you know, I'm not, right? Like even in the times that I needed money, I never did that because that's just not right. Like if I know someone's like a horrible, horrible candidate and they, I know how to game the system, I wouldn't because again, it's just going to hurt me more than it helps me because I'm looking to stay in this business for a very long time. Exactly. I think if you have a long-term view on things, then that would be totally counterproductive, right? But as you say, if someone really only is seeing this as a stopgap and they don't have kind of, it's not, they don't aspire to do this long-term, then it's maybe easier for them to rationalize that kind of decision, uh, unethical behavior. Yeah. Um, Done, done. I love the questions you're asking. I like how you do role plays during your interviews. That's cool. Any other great kind of your killer interview questions that you ask when you are recruiting recruiters? No, honestly, I just like to ask, like I go where 
I see the the profile, right? If the profile had some interesting moves or interesting background, I'll I'll bring it up. But really, you just you just don't know what you're getting when you get on the phone with somebody, right? Because they're they're working 10 to 12 to 18 months at a recruiting agency. You have no idea if you're talking to the next super biller or if you're talking to someone who is barely clinging on and is on their way out. You just have no idea of knowing that until they open their mouth. So all I have to do is just get them going and seeing how they control the conversation. And very quickly, you will know who you're dealing with. So a bad call, will be very short. And in the beginning, when I started recruiting recruiters, I would make a lot of effort and I alienated quite a big amount of people because I would try to convince them of the moral importance of caring about financial wealth. And I would try to educate them on my worldview because I'm like, you know, hopefully I can help you. People don't want to be helped if they're not helping themselves already. So I've learned very quickly that I should not be going on my preaching chair and telling people, you know, HR is really horrible. You have no idea how bad it is. Let me tell you why. Do you really want to be a subpar individual with subpar dreams and give up on the easiest job that you can have and have an utterly mediocre life? Like I used to really try to be like, guys, you're 26. You're going to kill yourself working this job for 30 years when you could just retire in five, literally like I did. Why is that not an alternative? They are not you. They do not what you want, what, want what you want. They are not your people. And so you shouldn't even bother wasting your precious breath on those folks. And I wasted a lot of my time on those people when I first started recruiting. And that was a big learn is that, you know, you just have to go where this person is going. And I have to very much change my style and say, hey, it's not a crime to want to go internal. You probably, you know, I'm not a big fan of it. That's for me personally. For you, it might be a good option. That's still what I do. I still educate them on, hey, look, like this is a really difficult job. If there was an alternative for you or if your financial drive wasn't so serious, you shouldn't really be doing this job. It really is a very stressful job. So I try to walk them to that path. And again, people who are going on that path, they just want your blessing to go on that path. But they're going on that path without you. And they, they already know they're going. They just needed you to kind of hear them and to give them that comfort. And that's probably why they took the call was just to get that peace of mind that they talked to a professional and the professional said, yes, you are not qualified for this long term. You should go now, free bird, go free yourself from this misery. You know, they just want someone professional to tell them that. Yeah. And so that's like majority of my job these days is just to be there for people. Because, again, the, the funnel is like this big. The people that I do deals with, like, is this big. So it's like 80% of my time is spent just helping Screening people, people out. And, yeah. And, and helping. Free. Okay. So, Dun Dun, um, what do you wish recruitment agencies knew about recruiting recruiters? Like, what are the uh, mistakes that you see agencies making when it comes to attracting yeah. and retaining top recruiters? Yeah. I have a lot of views on this. So the first one is a lot of recruitment agencies are not good themselves. They're not good. Their producers do not perform well. You see a lot of these like Joe Schmo recruiters, they do 300 to 500 a year. That's not impressive. Top billers today, juniors, mid-year, two to three year old recruiters are billing and making over, you know, anywhere from, sorry, billing over five to seven, easy. 
There's juniors that even bill over six today in year one. So a lot of recruiters, a lot of recruitment agencies are not qualified to recruit top billers. They would not be qualified. I would say a lot, most people uh, find themselves in that bucket because again, top billers, you know, a 24 year old is billing your CEO under the table. Why would they come work for you? So that's a very scary reality is that if you don't have people and a lot of people billing over three to four to five, you don't have people billing over uh, at the senior level. If you don't have like a role model, someone billing five to seven easy every year and kind of living that life, you have very little attractability to the next generation. They don't want to come work for you because they're already billing 800, right? So we, we're going after people. I billed over 740 in 2013 by myself, my own clients, my own candidates, never had to live off of company accounts. I built, I brought in all the big clients for my company. I was the first person that brought in all the clients. So somebody who's gone through that, that's not going to be your target candidate. And that's the sad thing when I talk to a lot of recruiting agencies, they're like, I want to hire that person. I'm like, but you're not even good enough to hire that person. That's the sad thing. They have zero self-awareness. So that's the first problem. All right. So let me, let me just enumerate this. So first problem is um, you have to have a proven system with role models who are already performing well to attract more top performers is what you're saying. Totally. Absolutely. If you're looking to hire experienced talent, okay. experienced top billers, right? Mm-hmm. If you're trying to get someone to come from a mid-sized to large-sized recruiting agency who's billing five to seven a year and they're 28 years old and you your top biller is doing 500 that's not very attractive to them because the alternative is they could just go else. They're still in a learning phase where they want to learn more. How can you learn more from someone who's billing less than you are? It's very hard to do that because, you know, the next option is like either I go executive search or I start my own recruiting firm or I go internal. You know, some people just like, I want to do something else, learn something different. So this population, they have a lot of needs. So the number one thing is, I think, again, understanding where you are in the market and building your strategy around what you are as an employer. So if you're not a very strong biller and your team is not billing a lot, but you're billing okay enough to hire someone new, again, it's it's just like you probably have to DIY it. You probably have to like somehow find like a college grad that you're going to train to maybe do some administrative sourcing role. Or alternatively, you can increase your billings. You can increase your billing you know, track record so that you can become a more impressive uh, client. But the reality is, is most recruiters, you know, we are not tax savvy. Most of us, we are not, there's, it's very hard to reinvent the recruitment wheel. The recruitment wheel has survived uh, and thrived regardless of what technology exists out there. So it's not even like you can create a next gen technology. The best you can do as an employer, this is my second tip, is to provide everything an employee wants, which Mm. is like good healthcare. Good healthcare, 401k match, because that's where you're going to win where the large agencies don't have. Large agencies couldn't care less about your 401k. They know that 80% of their staff is 22 years old, 23 years old, and they're going to leave relatively soon. So they don't have a lot of these benefits that senior talent or mid to senior talent want, which is this ancillary stuff. Like, you know, we'll cover your health benefits for your family. A lot of agencies, they don't even have family plans. Because again, their target customer is a 
like a 23 year old. So it's unlikely that they have family. So in the U.S., that's really important is like as you age as an organization, what are you providing to your aging team members? Because if you're not providing those things, they're going to go find it elsewhere, including remote work. Right. Somebody just does not want to live in Manhattan anymore. They want to live on the shore and they want all this free time to do what they want outside of work. So you, you really have to start customizing your offering. And that's, again, where a lot of small companies, that is their advantage. They have this flexibility to provide bespoke commission plans. So somebody's on a draw, somebody's on a base. Somebody's getting this percentage. Someone's getting that percentage. Someone's split desk. Someone's full desk. You know, everyone has a different opportunity at these smaller recruiting firms. So theoretically, it is very attractive as an opportunity for people leaving a large agency, go to a small one. But the sad thing is because so many small agencies are not good that you really have to know what you're doing as a candidate. God forbid you sign your life away to a really crazy hiring manager. And we've seen a lot of that. That's another crazy thing. There's a, that's that's the third point is there are a lot of really awful people in this business that I just, really? I wish I, they would just I don't, be better. I don't know if I agree with I, that, Don Don. Like I have found of course in every industry you know there's there's good good folks and 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 not good folks right but um i would say 90% of the recruiters and the recruitment business owners that i come across um are 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 decent people who are trying to you know uh they're trying to do well for themselves their families and right. their clients and their candidates right i i would agree with you that your clients that is the case but on the market as a whole, I would agree that's not, I would say that's not the case because okay. you're only going to service a small subset of the entire market. And those, those customers, they're going to obviously treat you with respect. And we have a very small book of customers that we would work with. We used to take a lot more bad acting than we take today. Today, we're in a position that we do not tolerate any bad behavior. I mean, we had clients that we did like six to seven deals with, and they consist, two clients, that they consistently pay us after the rebate concludes. It's just mm. bad acting. It's bad behaviors because recruiting is an industry that attracts these narcissists and psychopaths. That is, <laughs> these are the people that succeed. Sincerely, these are the people that succeed in this business. You have to be a chameleon. So you see you CEOs, doctors, lawyers, high, high earners. They tend to have rich people, wealthy people. They tend to have very, uh, they tend a big group of them are pretty awful people because they don't conduct themselves. They Maybe they came from money. Maybe they feel very uh, victimized because they had to work so hard to where they got to. So you see a lot of very awful people in this industry. A lot of older people who are like 67, you know, 50 to 60 years old, they will yell at me. And I've never been treated so terribly by my pharmaceutical clients and my venture capital clients than I have been treated by the recruitment industry as a whole, including my past colleagues who became clients. Wow. Even because they were finally clients, they were able to wield that power because recruiting agencies, we're so downtrodden all the time. We're so downtrodden that finally it's my turn to be the abuser. I'm going to do it. And we see so much of that. We've seen clients try to steal candidates from us. We've had clients steal candidates from us. Loyal clients steal candidates from us. And it's just, it's a brutal industry. So rec to rec especially, I think it's a brutal, brutal industry. 
that uh, Grace and I, we have our own plans on why we're in it, because it's certainly not for the billing reason. I was making much more as a venture capital recruiter, um, where the deal sizes are five times what they are today for because we only bill on base for recruiters. Yeah. But there's a whole nother point of like where I'm at in my life and dreams that I have entrepreneurially for this market. So what we want to do is we want to change that. That's why Grace and I exist is we want to only, we want to help guard the candidate community from being sucked into all these horrible employment situations. I recently had a client who literally said, a new client that I was testing on a candidate of mine. And the can- the client literally said, I'm the biggest, best, I'm the best, I'm, I've been around for 30 years, I'm the best. And because he was losing the candidate, the candidate did not want to work for him at that point, and he could feel it. And instead of just being like, oh, that's a bummer, what can we do better? The reaction was defensiveness, was chest pounding, and it was abusive, literally just, and it was two-faced. Because on the one end, he's mistreating me and is CCing grace into our communications, just being absolutely aggressive. I'm going to make a TikTok about it because it's so ridiculous. And and then Mike, and then he goes around me to my candidate and he's like, oh, I heard your, I heard your parent is ill. Are you feeling like, we'll give you lots of time to dis- decide. On my end, he's like, deadline him for Monday and tell him like, I don't agree when people act like they have ill parents. I'm like... On the other end, he's talking to my candidate like, oh, I'm so sorry that your your parent is ill. This is stuff that you will never see at a Fortune 500 because they'll not, those people are mentally un- insane. They would not survive in a proper employment situation. And because recruitment is so entrepreneurial, any Bob, Dick, and Mary can have a recruiting firm. And that's the scary part. Every crazy person that just happens to know how to sell a thing or two can open up a recruiting firm. So where is the quality assurance in that? There is none. So all you can do is look at their background. Where did they come from? What are they saying? And then you have to match up their saying with their action. Are they truly a great salesperson by the way they're behaving? And only with time and experience can you figure out who's the real deal, who's not. And that's leagues apart. That's what we get paid to do. So again, it's, it's a very challenging job that has consistently taught me nonstop. Um, and again, because this industry is 95, 95% of our hiring managers are male, alpha male types. And they're not used to an alpha female speaking to them. So there's that dynamic. <laughs> and I can't, you know, I get, I'm like, I'm surprised. I'm like, these things that I get do other people. And then I'm Asian. Not 80%, if not 90% of the hiring managers are white male. So you have that dynamic. And it's like, huh, I just don't believe that these men would talk to other fellow male men like this. Right. I just don't know if that's the case. Like this is so egregious the way they're speaking to me. And even Grace, she's a white woman. She can look at me and say, I cannot believe that person just did that and said that to you. I've never been treated like that. So this industry, we have seen it all. And I have seen even more because I'm an Asian female. I have seen Mm -hmm. it even more because I get to understand this culture. But, you know, again, that's just life. It's just it's just is what it is. So the best you can do as of Rectorac is to pick your battles, have a system where you only work with the clients that you genuinely think are good. Because again, 
be very careful when onboarding a new client. That's about, that's the number one thing I think to run a successful direct direct is to price yourself at a premium and to reject more than you take on because the likelihood of onboarding a bad client is so high. Do you know what, Don Don? I think that's not just applying to direct direct. That is every recruiting firm needs to only work with clients that are, you know, grade A clients, right? Who are going to be collaborative, who are going to be respectful, who are going to listen to your ideas and and who are um, attractive employers to your candidates and so on, willing to pay a premium. Um, I would say that that's the case for mm-hmm. uh, my business especially, but for my other markets, I have represented tier C clients, tier B and TC or tier C clients. That's okay. Because again, if you're in a technical market where it's just price, where you're literally buying an accountant, taking this accountant, putting them somewhere else for X dollars differential, that accountant, he he or she has a bad job already. It's a difficult, terrible job that is exhausting (laughs) and they have to get paid a lot of money to do. So that person knows, okay, if I work for company A or company B, they're both going to be equally or marginally bad. Like the job itself is going to be the same, if not equally bad. And because I'm being paid an hourly wage, it's a set salary. I'm just going to go where people have money. So this is how bad companies, they could still be a good client because again, like this candidate wants that. They don't care about being treated fairly. They don't have, they just need 50,000 extra dollars. If you have a client that's difficult to work with, that's awful, but they pay that $50,000 and they're within driving distance for that candidate, that could work for your candidate. So I have represented tier B and tier C clients for this reason, for technical jobs, not for recruiting. Recruiting recruiters is a unique business in which you can't do that because we're not buying this person out for them to sit on a 250K base and eat dirt all day. They're getting paid a 70 grand draw and they're not going to put up with it. They're not going to put up with that behavior, which is why you can't align yourself, especially in my market with a bad client. You can't. You physically cannot profit off of a bad client in my market currently. Although I argue you could profit off of a medium to bad client before under the right circumstances because people need jobs. Yeah, fair enough. But at the same time, you only have one life and you only have so much time and you want to spend your time with people who are um, going to give you energy and who you enjoy spending time with, right? And so I think, right. you know, the, it's can I make money from this situation? This person isn't the only, um, right. isn't the only uh, part of the, the equation to me. It's yeah. I want to but spend my, time. My point to, mm-hmm. Right. But my point on that is, My customer wants that. Mm -hmm. I do what my customer wants. My candidate wants that. They don't care about what you mentioned. I cannot be judgmental. Like, I cannot because my customer themselves want a, they don't care where they work. You know, it could be an immigrant who came to this country to make a lot of money. And they're like, like my family, they don't care. They don't care about what you're talking about. Only people with privilege care about those things. Like, oh, I need to have a really great boss. I need to have a really good... Certain segment really prioritize that. But certain segment of your market don't care. They're just doing it for the money. And 
And you would be disservicing them if you do not give them the full range of options as a provider of jobs. Mm -hmm. So I would say, again, to each their own. But for me, as an employee in that situation where I was getting a cut of my commission, especially in that scenario, you need to generate a high volume of sales so that your end of the day cut can be even decent. If you're so picky as an employee, you can't even survive financially. So when you own your own agency and you take on 100% of the profits, absolutely. You don't have to work half as hard as you did as a worker somewhere because you're getting 100% of the profits. So instead of working 50 accounts, you can 100% say, I'm just going to live off four. Like you can even do that, right? If you're a solopreneur, you can just work with four. You know, it, it doesn't even, you could be highly picky. So I think, again, it's customized to the individual in their situation and also customized to their market. Again, my market doesn't want that. My market can't sustain it. The, the rebate period would be immediately an issue if I have a bad client, right? And I wouldn't, why yes, would I waste exactly. all this time doing a deal? Yeah, if I know the camp is going to quit because certainly they're not doing it for the money. Money, 60 grand, 70 grand draw. Right. So again, it's all tied together for why I have to do certain things for certain markets. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. Don, Don, I wanted to just return briefly to this idea of the relationship between the agency and the rectorec because it's it's um, I have what you described. I have heard that before that like recruitment agencies make the worst clients, and so what I would say is like treat others how you would like to be treated as a supplier, right? As a provider of recruiting yeah. services, you know, uh, if if you want to get access to the best candidates, then you should be working with someone exclusively. You should give them a premium, you know, fee level. You should give them like tons of feedback and cooperation. You should be like the dream client to your rec to rec because, you know, think of it from the other point of view. Why, you know, when you've got a client that's giving the job to tons of agencies, that's like trying to hammer you down on fees, that's doesn't call you back, then how much time and effort are you going to spend on that client in a candidate-driven market? You're, you're not. So surely it's logical that recruit, recruitment firms should apply you know, that, that mm -hmm. forward to their, uh, their suppliers. Um, one yeah. more question about recruiting recruiters then. So you said, obviously, if you want top performers, you need to have a culture of top performance. Um, number two, you need to provide what people actually want. And you referenced... Um, healthcare, 
401k match, um, you know, um, the ability to work remotely. Those were the top three things you mentioned. There are any other really important things that companies need to offer in order to get great people? They need to have some sort of platform, right? It can't just be like, oh, you come in here and you do every single thing in the world. You know, because that's like, what's the difference between just running my own agency, right? You have to actually have something. Like, what do you pay for? LinkedIn recruiter, you pay for Zoom info. You have to have some sort of like technology offering that you're going to pay for yourself as an employer. Got it. Where the candidate's so like, oh, great. I, I can, you know, just do my thing. Right. So you great. need to so have. Great. So number three is things. tools, resources, platform that cr- giving them yeah. all, all, everything they need in order to be super yeah. successful and make lots of money. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Existing Anything accounts, else? Like, yeah, existing cows or just like some sort of freedom for them to build and do what they can to build. Mm-hmm. Because obviously the more like handcuffs you put on someone, so supporting them to be like having that culture of like, you know, opportunistic, like, hey, you the door's open, you can come talk to me. And, and again, this is just like so many agencies. Again, this is a huge ad. It's just, it's free. It's just like, just be a better manager, right? This mm. is where if you just in, inspired your people, you gave them the leeway, you treated them res- with respect, you don't have that top-down bully culture. And, and again, just so many agencies fall into that trap because you have these egotistical top pillars that think they know everything and they don't want to learn. They don't want to take on new markets. They don't want to adapt their business behavior. They want to be a bully. And that's how they get deals done. They're, they shove things down their customers' throats. And that just doesn't work today. So what people want is like learning about like, how do we not do that? Like a platform being that it has to be some sort of niche, some sort of advantage, right? Like I don't want to come work at an agency where I'm sourcing, you know, accountants, HR people, you know, then what's the difference between just going internal, right? Like you just have me sitting here sourcing through like hundreds of recs. There's just the gap between me and money is like mountains, right? Mm. It has to be close to the money. I have to be able to see the path to the money as soon as possible. And how does your agency have that path? Where is the benefit? And how does that fall into my pocket, right? So all of these things need to kind of marry each other holistically. Uh, Don, how do you um, sell the opportunity to join a smaller firm as opposed to a, a bigger one? Because this is a an objection or a mental barrier that I've come across with some firm owners is, well, why would someone, I, we're only like five people, why would someone who's that good come and join a small firm? Mm-hmm. Well, again, it depends on that person's needs, right? Like I always say, mm-hmm. you cannot sell somebody something they don't want. So mm-hmm. of course, if I even try to sell something, I know I have a high degree of success that this is going to work, right? Otherwise I wouldn't even bother. I just, I would again, sell them out of it. So the selling, you can sell them for mm-hmm. it and you can sell them against it. So I'd sell against it before I even start selling for it because I don't want to waste my breath, right? Like I'm only going to sing to the people who want to hear me sing. So that would be the first Okay, step. I like, like that. How receptive so how are they? <laughs> speak, speak more about that. Uh, you're going to sell against it before you sell for it. Could you explain what you mean by that? Yeah. Every candidate is going to tell, they want to know what jobs you have, how much they're paying, and who are the companies. That's why they're on the phone with you, right? A lot of candidates, that's what they want. And it's a big waste of your time to just be like, here you go. Read my whole entire company manifesto and like, let me educate you on my entire business. It's a huge waste of a recruiter's time 
to do that uh, because we're not getting anything out of it. The candidate is getting all the information downloaded and you have nothing. So you have to constantly be on the offensive as a recruiter, like I said, to ask those open questions to be like, why are we on this call? Are you genuinely serious about looking or are you just like having an off day? Like, why are we on this call? Until I really understand why we're on this call, I will not be doling out any information. I just won't even be talk. I won't even be sharing you or bearing you my full soul because you don't, we're not there yet. We're not like, this is an intro call. This is a first line call. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your motives are. Is your motive to set up a recruiting agency that recruits recruiters? I don't know. Like, I don't know. So I'm not going to give you any information until you have given me enough to know that we're serious. And that might take a course of months that could be on the first call. You know, it just depends on that person's situation and what they tell me. I can only go by what they tell me and what I manage to uncover. So once I uncover that they are genuinely serious about looking and they're genuinely, they've gone through all of those vetting techniques that I talked about earlier, which is, you know, making sure that they're internal, anti-internal, making sure that there's some pain point. You know, again, if, if there's no pain point for a candidate to move agencies, it's not worth the marginal financial gain. It's just not yep. worth it. Like if the payout is, hey, I'm going to go to a small agency and I'm going to make uh, the same amount of money, if not 20 grand more, if not like even 50 grand more, let's say I make 250. I go to this small agency, I'm going to make 300. That's interesting, but they're not going to give me 300 up front. I'm going to have to earn that 300. I'm going to have to do a lot of work to earn that 300. And they're going to probably pay me like 80 or 90 or 70 or you know whatever. They're not going to give me 300. So mm -hmm. it's a big delta. That gap is so wide that I always tell candidates, like, don't move. Nine times out of 10, you shouldn't move, actually, because you're complacent. Complacency is awesome. If you can get away with it, that's freaking hitting the lottery. That's the jackpot right there. If you can get a job paying you 200000 plus at a, in your 20s, why do you have to bust your butt for the extra 100 Why? 200 is phenomenal. It's phenomenal living. And it's, it's just huge. Like you are done. You're, you're so far ahead of your peers and everybody in general, and you are on your way to be a millionaire so fast. Why would you risk that by potentially going to a small agency that doesn't live up to your standards and is a horrible employer? Because like we talked about, there's so many bad employers out there. So, so I always tell people, don't move. Don't. Don't even think about it. If you're making, first of all, if someone's making 400,000 or 500,000, that my chance of placing them is close to zero because that Delta, that gap is so big. There, it, the risk of them losing is actually higher than them gaining. The risk is like exponentially higher. It's like four times as bad to leave that situation than to win. In, and one out of five times you'd actually win in that situation, leaving a $500,000 job. So every time I talk to a candidate and I know they're making 500 or 300, 300 is where a candidate gets unaffordable for me. I'm just like, oh, this person shouldn't leave. It's too comfortable. So the only time you should leave is when there's some serious pain points, serious. I mean, like sexual harassment, negative employer, like horrible uh, company culture, you know, drug usage that you can't tolerate anymore. Like, you know, really bad, awful things. That's when you should leave. Otherwise, yeah, life is not perfect. Your boss could be better. Things could be better, but you're making too much money. You should just stay nine times out of 10. And the only people that make it out of that situation are the people who are independently wealthy, which unfortunately, most people I talk to, 
they do live up to their consumption. Their consumption rises with their income. So unfortunately, you meet someone who makes three hundred thousand, and they need three hundred thousand to live. So they cannot move. Done, done. That's.、Um, I think we could do a whole other podcast just about that. Actually, is you know how you get rich as a recruiter by investing rather than just you know spending your whole salary.、Um, what would be your top tip on that subject for recruiters who are you know they they might be making good money but they're not. Um, increasing their net worth. What's what's the first step? The first step is to stop caring what your colleagues think. Recruiting culture is so heavily, especially if you grew up in a mid to large size recruiting firm. It's so impacted by your peers.、Mm-hmm. You have to understand that your peers are not who you are. Like that's how I always felt. I always am the outsider. I'm never gonna be a company person. It's just I'm, I grew up differently. Like I am not gonna every day where if my friends want to go on a yacht cruise, I'm not gonna go. Like that just doesn't feed into my future, you know. Like I'm, I have to go look at houses so I can go and buy the condo that I'm dreaming of to make X dollars. Like I just have a different set of goals, and until you can really separate your goals from the people keeping away from those goals, there's obviously no no ability to reach those goals because you're so bogged down by your community. Whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's colleagues, right? And people used to make fun of me in my employment、um, situation, and I, I used to house hack. So I had an apartment, and I rented out every room, and I always had roommates. I did this for ten years, and I and I got another apartment to do the same thing. That's how I lived for free, literally lived for free. And literally one day after work, everyone gathered around me, and I was renting one of my rooms to my colleague. I helped her move, and I was helping her save four hundred dollars a month, which is not a small number for someone making thirty five thousand dollar base. So I was helping her save four hundred dollars in rent, and she's completely happy with the situation. Everyone at work was making fun of her, making fun of me, calling me a slam slumlord, just ragging on me after work, just yelling at me, and I cried. I felt so awful. I was like. I'm helping her. I'm helping her. Like her dad is like she's. I'm such a good influence on her life, helping her save, helping her be financially savvy. Because like most people, they want to tear you down and they don't want to support. They want to see other people's getting it. They just want to flaunt what they have, right? So they want everyone to be doing that, and they're secretly jealous if you now don't do what they do. So I had, I had the, I had the disposable income to purchase a Chanel purse every single month. But I didn't do that because I'm like I'm trying to put that towards a house, right? And then here and there, I have a nice purse, and everyone would be like, "Oh my god!" Like finally, she's like, people will literally come up to me and be like, "I don't understand how you live. I don't understand how you live because you live in Brooklyn." And I'm like, "What? I live really good. Like I I eat at my local Chinese restaurant. Like what are you talking about? Like you're acting like I'm living in filth or like poverty. Like I'm living real good. Like I'm I'm like." Nine thousand dollars in the bank right now. Like, what are you talking about? People, I don't know how you live. And, and so, the first thing is, you got to stop caring what everybody in your peer group thinks of you, because they're wrong about like pretty much everything. And so, the first step is to isolate your behaviors from their behaviors. So every time they do something, don't do it. If they're going out buying shots and drinking like you know an unlimited amount of alcohol, like just just don't do that because you know you're adding up the values. You're like that person. Every drink is fifteen dollars. Seven drinks, that's like you know over a hundred bucks. <laughs> you do that three times a week, you're never gonna get rich, like ever. It, so it's just knowing that like these habits, these spending habits, 
are impacting you. So I would literally just drink water and I'm like, oh, I'm allergic to alcohol. I just drink water. I just drink water. Unless it was company sponsored, I would never drink freely because I'm like every single drink costs money. So it, it's just, it, it's just a, a sacrifice I made that I was like, this is the way to do. It. And I found it fun. I found it really fun. It's like, how can I game the system? How can I save more? How can I like eat like the cheapest food? I would like manage every single restaurant that would have discounts after a certain time. Like at six o'clock, that sushi restaurant goes on sale. I work till nine anyways. I'm going to go downstairs and grab me some extra sushi. Like, so it was all those little behaviors. I would never buy coffee ever. This company has a free coffee machine. Never. I would never go to Starbucks. Like ever. Now I drink Starbucks all the time, but that's just like a different <laughs> situation. But back then I would be like, never for like five years. I would never buy Starbucks. Like if I did, it would be at a company meeting or like an event where I could write it off with the company and get expensed. Right? Like, cause I'm never going to spend anything I don't have to spend. Obviously you can eat well, do whatever, but it's, it's just making those daily sacrifices, creating a set of habits that you're like certain things I just will not do. Like I will not take taxis. That's another thing. Like back then I would never take taxis. I'd be at home. I'd be on the train at 3am going home and I would take the public subway and like, just risk it. Like whatever. Like I'm not going to take a taxi because the taxi is $40. I don't have $40. Like, and I, so I could save even on 35 K base. Like I could even have leftover because like I would have breakfast. I'd go to the Chinese place, get a $1 hot dog. That was breakfast. Lunch, like Subway sandwich. Subway sandwich, $5 foot long, cut it in half. That's lunch and dinner. Like, it was like that. I would I would just abuse my body on fast food to, to cut down while I was building my, my nest egg. Obviously, as things got better, I didn't have to do those things. Wow, incredible. And so what's the sort of uh, portfolio that you've put together now, Don Don? Yeah, so a lot of my stuff, I need to do like a full like calibration. I have some money in crypto, probably like five to 6% in crypto. Um, I have some like random, like I have a M1 account, I have a Robinhood account. So I have some of these like robo stuff that I do, um, very little, like probably like one to 2% is in that. Um, I have a 401k, I don't really invest in my 401k. I, again, that's, I'm more interested in using the money right now to put into assets. So now um, real estate is probably still like 80%. So I have seven homes, seven homes. Um, I just sold one. And so now I'm going to use that to like, you know, renovate the new one I got. So I'm going to end up this year with two, three Airbnbs. So two, four family Airbnbs, one single family Airbnb. Airbnb is my favorite investment vehicle now. Like the margins are so great. Um, and the rest are just like, you know, I have a two, I have two, two families um, and one condo. So that's the rest. And then something else. Um, yeah. So the real estate is rental? like a good 80%. Yeah, those are just full-time rentals. Got full-time. it. Full-time. Yeah. Amazing. Um, well, yeah. Don Don, we've we've uh, gone way over our hour, which I had originally planned for. Um, really fun conversation, and uh, I so many golden nuggets there. So thank you. I've really enjoyed it, and uh, I'm looking forward to keeping in touch and getting to know you better. Sounds great. Thanks for having me, Mark. It was really fun getting to know you and being on your show. I know it's a beloved show by many in the recruitment market. So thanks so much for putting together great content content for our community. Thank you so much. And uh, I'll look forward to speaking again. Take care. Sounds good. Thank you so much for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. If you've enjoyed the show, the best way you can show your support is to click that subscribe button. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time.